Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume. Uh, I received a few emails this week from listeners, and I wanted to say thank you for reaching out and sending over your positive support. It can uh, sometimes feel like we're sending this thing out into the abyss of the internet, so it's always appreciated to know that this is reaching people and that you're enjoying it, so thank you. Today's guest is Kieran Gandhi, an activist and musician who has played with MIA and Thievery Corporation. Recently, she made headlines for running the London Marathon without a tampon while on her period, raising awareness about issues related to stigmas around menstruation. We had a really interesting talk in my kitchen, so let's get into it. closer to you yes, sir. this is just a you know this is our bootleg setup no it's actually very <laughs> legit i'm not even kidding it's perfect <laughs> test test yeah so thanks so much for coming over here it's a pleasure to be here uh so let's start where uh, where did you grow up i grew up right here in manhattan um in murray hill on 38th and lexington and what was that like it was so fun my favorite is that we had a playroom on the top floor and i used to go hang out with my two best friends john and nicholas in the top floor of the building. Mm, yeah, that's where the playroom was. And yeah. I would like tell them like, okay, tomorrow at 4 p.m. we have a play date in the playroom yeah. on the top floor. And uh, my room looked out onto uh, the Empire State Building. That's you know, awesome. West facing. And my dad and mom used to teach me growing up that each of the colors would always map to some sort of significance that day. So every night before I go to bed, I would always look at what color is the, um, the Empire State Building today. What does it mean? What could it mean? Right. Some days it was obvious, St. Patrick's Day, Halloween, Valentine's Day. But other days, um, I think I got to be very creative in my brain as to what the colors represented. Did you know that the, apparently there's a hotline? There's a number you can call? To buy the colors for no, that day? To, no, no, not to buy them. It's not a hotline. Like, call now. Get the colors. <laughs> no, it's a hotline. Um I guess not a hotline is the wrong word. Probably more of like an information line where it'll call you and it'll tell you why the Empire State Building is what colors for that day. 26 years later and now I'm finding this. It's so full circle. It's probably better to come up with your own stories though, right? I think it was part of my creative process. Every night I would think about it. But I do like the idea of now being able to access information. You have a special space for you and your friends on the top floor of this building. I can't imagine something like that happening now. That's prime real estate, you know, <laughs> having a penthouse playroom. That just like that's, doesn't. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. That's really funny. That's yeah, awesome. Um, well, I do want to share one thing about that, which is that my feminism was birthed there on that in that playroom. Really? How was that? Uh, I was three or four. It had to have been three or four because when I was five, um, it didn't. I was already in kindergarten. It was before that. And it was Halloween, and we, me, John, and Nicholas all decided that we were going to be the Power Rangers. Mm-hmm. So I get up to the party, and like I have my candy and my bag and my outfit, and um, they're mad at me. I'm like, what are you guys mad about? They're like, why aren't you the Pink Ranger? Why mm. are you the Red Ranger? Um, and I said, well excuse me, but the pink one doesn't really do that much. Like the red one runs the show, you right. know, he has access to the machinery. He's the main um, robot when they turn into those big robots. Exactly. He's running the show. Like it's my Halloween. I get to be wherever I want to be. <laughs> and they didn't talk to me for the rest of the night because I wasn't the pink ranger. I didn't follow suit. I got it wrong. And then from that day on. From that day on, I knew that there was a problem in the world. <laughs> 
Hey, I mean, it's great. You know, learn it as soon as you can, any way you can, right? Yeah. When you look back on growing up in the city, how do you feel about that? I feel very, very happy that I grew up in the city because it made me have a go-getter attitude and it mm-hmm. made me not worry too much about stuff. I think, how so? Well, the, with the go-getter attitude, it's completely related to my drumming. When I was young, growing up, I could be 15 playing in Alphabet City. I remember there was a bar called Otto's Shrunken Head. Oh, I remember. I, is, is, is it not open anymore? I don't know. A, like, but I know that 15-year-olds go there, so I yeah. actively try not to go there because right. I was 15 playing drums there. And they put two X's on your hand, and it was one of the main spots in town that you can play underage. And right. I used to play with all sorts of different people down there, and it, it was so affirming to play for a real audience to not play for you know my mom and dad right um that's definitely part of the city experience so anyway so to back up Mm. so when when did you start playing the drums i played the drums uh starting at age 11 when i was at a summer camp Mm -hmm. and they always make you swim in the afternoon in the lake in maine and I don't really Those like swimming. evil people. I know, it's so annoying. I mean, listen, <laughs> once a week, twice a week, but every afternoon, God, it's like, then your hair smells like the lake for the whole week. It's so annoying. So eventually, I just sort of said, I'm going to sneak off. And so I just didn't want to swim that day. So I snuck off. And I remember that there was a theater where I knew no one would be. Right. The theater hut. Yeah. Or cabin, rather. And I went into the cabin, and um, there was an abandoned drum set there. So I started playing it. And uh, after I was playing for a little while, uh, there was a maintenance man who was cleaning in that area. And I for sure thought he was going to turn me in, you know. Mm-hmm. And it turned out he played the drums. Oh, that's crazy. And uh, he started teaching me stuff. <laughs> that's amazing. And I loved it. I loved how debaucherous it was. I loved that it was like what no one else was doing. I loved that he was helping me. I loved my bond with him. Like, it just felt so fun. And he just treated me like little sister style. He's like, all right, let's do it again. Like, oh, that sucked. You got to try- do it right. again. He's, you get it right. He was pretty much like you're Mr. Miyagi. He really totally was. That's a, He's that's the man. A, that's beautiful. And then so you just, you kept with it. You just, you, you, you were drawn to it and you just, you loved it. And Yes, and I think that was part of um, growing up in Manhattan is that my parents also, even though they are of Indian origin, I think surrounded by others in Manhattan who are open-minded and edgy and boundary pushing, they were like, okay, cool. Our daughter wants to play the drums. It's a little bit weird, but we'll buy you a drum set. And they encouraged it. And they set it up in the apartment. They set it up. We were actually in, um, at this point, when I started playing the drums, I was living now in the Upper East Side. Okay. So between when I lived in Murray Hill, I moved, we moved to India for three years. Oh, wow. I lived in Bombay. How then was I came, that? I mean, it was the best. Yeah. Do you miss it? I do, actually. Do you get to go back there? Um, about once a year, but mm-hmm. what I miss is not Bombay. I actually miss literally the nineties in India. <laughs> like that was what I miss. <laughs> what is the ni- What is that? What does that mean to it's you? It's me always doing different like talent shows and fashion shows and like weird projects in my house. I, I used to make robots when I was little that played music. So oh, wow. I would take my MP3s and then like connect it to connects. And then I would have my mom come in and be like, mom, put your headphones on. Like Roby the robot's going to play music for you. What? Where were you learning how to do all this? I just invented it. Like I would like cut up shoe boxes and then put my MP3 player through the shoe boxes. So they looked like buttons. Yeah. And then you can choose like number one for Backstreet Boys number two not mp3 player it wasn't that it was a mini disc player a Sony mini disc Mm -hmm. player Um, I remember always calling into the MTV VJs and making requests I I used to dance to the Spice Girls all the time we used to organize the talent shows I was a fourth grader like music and arts in India was just my jam I used to walk around with a backpack that said I'm a Spice Girl and a hat that said girl power and a shirt that had my own face on it that said Kieran comma the ultimate Spice Girl what about what about like the were you like absorbing any of the um, any of like the culture there? You know, 
it's funny that you're calling me out on this because I was totally like American and I loved being American in I'm, India. I'm not trying to call you out. No, on it's this. actually funny because I, I never thought of it that way because I really did just reference a million Western things given that I lived in India. Yeah. But I think I resonated so much with the Spice Girls and it happened right when I moved there mm-hmm. that a lot of my time spent there was just being a fan and yeah, being nostalgic yeah. for the fact that I wasn't in the States and I missed them. And I used to write to the Spice Girls a lot. I had all the Barbies. I would collect every newspaper. In terms of engaging with the local culture, I went to an all-girls Indian school. I did engage that way, just learning Hindi, um, having a lot of wonderful friends there, doing things that they did, getting ice cream after school, getting like all the amazing local snacks that they'd have selling on the street. Yeah. My favorite memory, though, that's very Indian, is um, they have a very heavy monsoon season in August, and it just pours, like, so heavy, but it's hot rain. And most people complain about humidity, but I think my preference for humidity comes from those memories of when I would put a bathing suit on and just Mm -hmm. go outside. And just play in the rain. Yeah. Swimming in the rain. Yes. It was awesome. That's great. And kids don't really do that because it's normal for them to have rain, so they're not thinking of it as this, like, fun, amazing thing. But for me, I was like what the what's going on outside like i've never seen anything like this in america it's yeah. so heavy and tropical and i have a very fun memory of just playing outside that's great swimming in the rain is probably like one of the s- sweetest things in the world it really is um i actually swam in the rain this weekend and i was like i can't believe how great this is wow. so you know moving around and, and, and traveling Came around back here yeah, so like h- how do you think that shaped who you are it's actually connected to something that i solidified most recently when I was at business school Mm -hmm. and they talk about your identity and what matters to you and being open-minded and understanding that the reason why someone's opinion is the way it is is based on a collection of experiences that is vastly different from yours Mm -hmm. and that they're not crazy you're not crazy Mm -hmm. the differences come because of some valid thing they've seen and I think that I realized my gratitude for that very specific message and that very specific thirst to ask other people, oh, why do you think that? Oh, cool, where did that come from? It came full circle for me and it, I understood myself and my desire for that stuff because of my travel. That's great. And you feel lucky to, to have had that experience. Of course. If, yeah. you've, if you grow up in Manhattan and you don't leave, all you know is, is that first world life. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, you just grow up comfortable. Yeah. And we, something that the folks who run Daybreaker say and who run She Thinks, you know, Mickey and Radha Agarwal, they're like total legendary serial entrepreneur uh, idols of mine. They always say we win, we won the lottery of life. And it's our duty to uh, give back and to be aware of those who are not as fortunate and to find ways to support them. Mm-hmm. And that was very salient to me growing up because of having this experience living in India. What kind of kid were you growing up? I was always mischievous. Yeah, how so? I was always causing problems and getting into trouble, like light trouble. I used to switch the school, like the shoes. We had shoes in the cubbies in mm-hmm. second grade. I remember always switching them. So I played a prank. I loved pranks. Really? Yeah. Where's it, where did that come from, do you think? I don't, I think that's just, we're all born with inherent calls to action i just wanted to just be a troublemaker and shake shit up i think i just loved i was attracted to shaking things up turning them on their head when i was young were you were you you know running wild in the streets when you moved back to manhattan never 
Never. Never. I, I was very grounded. My parents were very much in my life, and I was never crazy. I think my craziness was actually quite tame in that we would always have huge parties when my parents were gone, mm-hmm. but we'd have them at my house because I knew it would be a controlled environment. Right. And that's also part of my feminism, to be honest, is that a lot of times when women go into spaces that are run and operated by men, I personally believe they're not safe, which I appreciate as a little bit radical, and I don't want to be insulting but i also want to say that when i went to georgetown and i would go into places that were frat houses or places that are parties run by colleges oh oh yeah i felt like the goal was okay she's hot she can come in she's not hot she can't come in right and then once you're in it's like oh drink 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 we have free drinks for all the girls guys have to pay ten dollars all that kind of stuff like what is the message oh well we want to get girls drunk and we want to have the hardest girls at this party because that's what social status is and then we want to sleep with them right and i think being young and understand that dynamic early before going to college and being able to control my social space with my friends who were all girls and we were all running the show. It just, it made for an awesome, awesome rad party with good music and good people, but it was safe. It was safe. It felt comfortable. And I think it's also, it's a kind of thing too. It's like the kind of fun that you can have in those spaces um, is the best kind yes. of fun. Yes, and I didn't realize that that's what we're doing, but I actually just had this moment now when you asked me the question, that's yeah. exactly a lot of where my feminism comes from too, is being like, oh, well, I actually know what a fucking cool-ass party looks like <laughs> without people throwing up or getting uh, assaulted or feeling right. unsafe or feeling right. like they have to do something or perform a sexual act that they don't want to because they want to look cool in front of other people. I know what it's like to be fucking dope as fuck but <laughs> not have to do that stuff. <laughs> Were your parents uh, supportive of you, or did they have a plan for you, what they wanted you to do? We grew up the second half of our life in uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's townhouse on the oh, Upper East wow. Side. And I say that because my parents were very aware of philanthropy and about giving back and about being involved with her foundation, which is focused especially now on girls' leadership mm-hmm. and starting and targeting girls at a young age. They see themselves as leaders as, at age 9 and age 12. And for this reason, we would host people like Hillary Clinton in our home. We would host influential speakers from around the world, Sherry Blair. Well, I mean, what was that like for you, just getting exposed to all these people? Just I think it's good when it feels like normal life. Yeah. Because then, and it's so funny because it's so easy for that to sound spoiled, but I think the beauty is that if you feel like that's normal life, it, it doesn't intimidate you to want to change the world. It right. feels in your bones. It, it feels like it feels it's within possible. Your, within your reach. It feels within your reach. It's not this impossible thing. That's that, it. Yeah, and yeah. then if you feel that, I can take others with me. When I meet the next generation of young women, I can say, oh, no. The time is now. The time is not when you're 60 or 70. It's when you're 10. It's when you're 15. It's when you're posting something on Snapchat when you're 18. Like right. You can influence people with what you do, what you show. It's important. And because of this, my parents did push me in a political direction. And I got into Georgetown, which is in D.C., and I was a political science major going in. But the more I spent time in D.C.'s music scene, Mm -hmm. the more I got involved with Thievery Corporation, the more I sat in with them in their clubs, the more I got wrapped up in that world, practicing, performing, helping them with odd and end tasks in their um, record label. Yeah, 18th Street Lounge. I loved that label growing up. You know, I used to love, like, uh, Ursula 1000. He's the homie. I played with him at South by 2013. Oh, he's still, he's still playing. Well, it was two years ago, but yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I used to I used to go see him DJ. Oh, he's the DJ. He's here. He, he is. In New York, yeah. That's great. And who else was on? Uh, Frederick mm-hmm. Ab- Abel. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got it. You're crushing it. Yeah, they had that, that space in, in D.C. That's it. And so yeah. I got a residency there my senior year. What, what does that mean? What it means you? that I played there every single Sunday. Oh, wow. 
It was the dream gig because I got to play drums alongside the DJ. And as a kid, as you know, to make money playing music, that's ridiculous. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, you don't even get money having a real job in the actual like White House or something. You're, yeah. Now, so imagine just getting money to play drums. It felt awesome. Uh, I wanted to tell you that I remember a very difficult conversation where my parents were pushing me to apply to uh, to the White House for an internship. Mm-hmm. And I told them, I don't even want to apply. I have no desire to apply to this. I will go back to DC and I am going to work for this record label and I don't care that they're not paying me. I feel good. Right. I feel good to be contributing to this musical entity that is in DC. I feel good when I listen to this music. I feel good performing with these people. I feel good having dinner with these friends of mine. It doesn't feel like anything I've experienced at Georgetown. It felt holistic. It felt like my day was working at the label and my night was performing in mm-hmm. DC. Mm-hmm. It was chocolate city it was thievery it was lounge music it was soulful go-go music it was nigerian fella kuti music like it fucking blew my mind like you know when you i don't know i was gonna say if you like when you orgasm for the first time you're like what the fuck like yeah what the fuck yeah um (laughs) when you're young and then after that it's like you're off right you're 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 set free and i felt that way with music in dc i said i didn't know about this and now that I know about this, there's no turning back. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm not playing the drums. I'm not drums extracurricular. I am a drummer. Right. It's holistic. And I really wanted to say that because it takes bravery to then react to that experience and protect it and hold it and say, everyone's trying to tell me to do this, this, this. Fuck y'all. Right. I know how I feel when I'm in this and I'm going to fight for my life to work in music so that I can always feel like this. Exactly. Uh, it, it, well, the thing is, too, and it's like, that's a, it's just a hard, it's just like a hard choice to make, you know, because the only person pushing you is you. You know, a lot of people can just, like, choose something and they can just, like, skate on that. I have a piece of advice, too, for people who are tuning into this, which is, like, something that someone told me along the way, right around that shift. I really want... I was having a tough time convincing my parents um, that I'm going to move to L.A., work at a record label, I'm going to play the drums. What worked, though, is that after... I would just report many successes, you mm-hmm. know? I wouldn't report anything in between. Right. I would report, like, oh, yeah, I, ta- I met Jimmy Iovine today. And when I say met, like, he was, like, down the hall on the other side of, of course, the building. Of course, um, But I saw him, yeah. you know? He was on the same fucking floor as me. Oh, yeah. quick call to my mom and dad. Oh, I saw Jimmy Iovine. Oh, okay, okay, that sounds good. That sounds legit. <laughs> Next time, oh, I have a show. You know, it's me performing for 10 friends at a bar. Okay, great. I have yeah. my first show in LA. That's a success. It's worth reporting. Exactly. So the more I report these moments of happiness that I was fine, I think in truth, all parents want is for their kid to be good, you know, to be happy, to be fine, to mm-hmm. be healthy, mm-hmm. to be holistic, to be healed. And reporting those enabled it for when real successes came along like getting a real job at the record label working for mia getting in a good business school degree now they're on my side holistically so right. risk is no longer part of the question anymore it's they're they're there they see it that's great did you, you know growing up where they're like who are the who are your people like who are the folks that you wanted to emulate the people that influenced you tv on the radio yeah mia mm-hmm Spice Girls. Yeah. Fela Kuti is yep. all I listen to right now. Was there a path that you wanted to follow? I have a name for this. It's called Atomic Living, and it's completely pathless. 
pathless pathless okay a lot of times especially in professional schools like georgetown and harvard when they tell you come into a fucking career counseling meeting i understand this but it doesn't work for some people and a lot of times those people get kind of thrown off the radar because the school can't help them in the way that the school is used to helping people and then those people fall through the cracks and i was totally one of those people where i'd feel i would feel shitty about myself when i'd come out of those meetings what they do, I feel, is have this five-year plan, 10-year plan, 20-year plan. Okay. I appreciate the value of that. And they'd also do things like, who's your idol? Okay, cool. Let's re- re- reverse engineer what that person did, and why don't you go do that? Now, that's guidance, but it's not realistic. I think of atomic living as moment-to-moment interactions. Atoms are our most elemental um, state that make us up. In the same way, moment-to-moment interactions are the most uh, basic unit of time. Mm-hmm. And I can't look at somebody else's life and try to be that because it's not possible. What I do instead is I think of what are the things that matter to me most in this moment. What makes me happy in this moment? And luckily for me, they've been consistent for the, almost my whole life. Right now, today, I have five um, like focuses, basically. Feminism, gender equality playing the drums and making music under my project Madame Gandhi the music in like music business I'm working on a really amazing project for Spotify right now trying to make it better for creators fitness and uh and then my friends and family you know and so then whenever I'm I give I'm given decisions moment to moment opportunities that come into my email inbox I run into a friend someone texts me to come hang out I always try my best to say is this something that can nourish any of those focuses of mine? And if it can nourish those things, the answer is yes. And yeah, I'll sacrifice sleep. And yeah, my email inbox is going to be a little full. And yeah, my laundry is not getting done. Mm-hmm. But then there's times when those none of those opportunities come in, you know? And then I have the whole day free. And then I catch up on all that stuff. So this is atomic living. It's building the path in real time based on what matters to you in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I like this because if in 10 years something happens god forbid and i can't play the drums or i don't want to play the drums anymore i like the idea and the liberation and saying okay well what matters to kieran at 36 well she gets to start right in that moment atomic living based on what matters to her in that moment right because kieran of 36 is not kieran of 26 is not kieran of 16 and one more thing i want to add please do is that when i was 16 i never in a million years would think i could play the drums for mia I got her album, A Ruler, at my 16th birthday from a secret person. I'll to this day never know who gave me her album as a birthday gift. (coughs) You tell me, oh, yeah, Kieran, I think you should really um, plan your next 10 years to try to play the drums for MIA. Like, I'd be like, first of all, you're out of your fucking mind. Like, I'm not good enough for that. Right. And second of all, I wouldn't even know what to do. Maybe I would try to, like, call record labels. I would be forcing something through. It wouldn't feel organic. And so... While I do believe goals are good and advancing your careers, your career goals, short-term, et cetera, are good, long-term stuff for me has never worked. So for me, I will continue to live atomically, which in this moment is creating the path in real time. And how's it? How's that been? It's been it's been a life. It's been a wonderful life. Have there been challenges that have that have come up in your life? You know, living it that way and you know how do you deal with that yes right now there's a challenge we're trying to work for spotify and then also work on madame gandhi and then also travel to speak about period positivity and Mm -hmm. feminism um i think i take on only as much as i know i can deliver to that person and as i get better and more sophisticated and i grow up i'm better at managing those things i think you have to make mistakes 
you have to be brave enough to fuck up because every time i fuck up i'm like oh cool atomic living just got motivated like motive uh modified that didn't work that's great god bless yeah um just to go back a little bit so you're at georgetown and you're working with uh theory corporation 18th street lounge folks um when you were done with school what what was your plan what did you want to do what did you end up doing I fell in love with someone and they were in LA, so mm-hmm. it made the move easy. <laughs> that was a real motivation. But then amazingly, I got an internship in LA too. So everything felt aligned. But you knew you wanted to work in the music business. I did, but yeah. I never, I didn't know how to drive. I had never been to LA once in my life. What was it like, what was it like when you first got there? It was intimidating, it was huge. Yeah. I used to take the bus to get to work from Silver Lake to go to Santa Monica every day. It took two hours. When I first learned how to drive, I refused to go on the freeway because it was too scary. <laughs> Um, then my love moved away. So I was alone in LA for a little while and it was so hard. It was so hard. I didn't know anyone, but it felt good. It felt like my own adventure is, it was awesome. It Mm -hmm. felt, it felt, you know, you come home and I was, I will come home and I'm alone. Like no one knows where I am. Like my friends who are in New York, they're doing their New York thing, their post Georgetown thing. I was on my own mission and you have to be confident that, no, I came here for a reason. And the reason will manifest, so stay strong. So you were, so you're working for a record label? Yes. Were you making music or no. performing? I was performing, yes. Little drumming gigs here and there. But for a long time, I remember my box, my drums were in boxes because I was still trying to figure out the internship and trying to drive and go long distance and, you know, yeah. What was the moment when things changed for you there? When I found downtown LA, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yes. This is dope. Yeah. I found the arts district. I found a $600 loft. Unheard of. We had the best life in LA when that happened. Oh, it was so fun. I was in loft number 28. My best friend from Georgetown moved immediately and got loft. No, I was in loft number 29. She was loft 30. That's what it was. Right. We shared a bathroom. Each of us were paying 600 bucks. I had a great job at a record label. Uh, I had an adorable little Prius. There was a coffee shop downstairs. It was all people who would always be sitting outside. So every morning when I'd leave, I'd feel like I'd have people to say good morning to, have a coffee with, and then go um, to work. Right. Tiger Moon was an artist who was there. Lara would always be like drawing or singing or having a coffee with me, looking fabulous. Another guy named Runson would be playing guitar. Like it was just so, it was such a little dream life. So you were interning at the record label and eventually you started working there? After three months, I converted into a job where I used my math degree. I did math at Georgetown as well. Mm-hmm. And I got the job as Interscope's first ever inter, like uh, digital analyst mm-hmm. to analyze patterns and consumption on Spotify and YouTube to understand how we can design a social marketing strategy and then digital marketing strategy that amplified money from either uh, iTunes sales or also from Spotify. Do you remember what those, you know, as you were the you were the first person to have that job in the company? I would imagine there was a lot of meetings where you're just talking to people who are just looking at you blank-faced. Yes, that was the great greatest training. Communication is everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Taking notice of people's reactions is very important to the next time you have a meeting. Say, oh, you know what? Every time I, sl- I show that slide, even though I think that slide is dope, it doesn't resonate. I'm not going to show it anymore. How would you describe your experience working there? The reason why my experience at Interscope was so amazing is that my boss was a bad bitch and she was amazing and took me under her wing and put me on and wrote my application for like my, uh, what is it called? My recommendation letter for Harvard and gave me a voice, mm-hmm. you know? She guided me and would mentor me and I trusted her and she, 
I could not have moved forward had I not had a mentor like that. Mm. And the value of respecting your mentors and doing good work for them and working your hardest because you can tell they're going to go to bat for you if you give them good work and you're their lean on. Mm-hmm. That's the best advice I can give anyone. And that's still to this day. Is like when you go to work somewhere, when you're working in music, find those who want to mentor you and then give them awesome work. Well, sometimes I think that can be a little hard. You know, it's hard. To, it's, I think it can be a little hard to to find those people who will be your mentor. Could not agree more. It's you know? very hard. It's like you're very lucky to have found it. In that moment, yes. You know? In that moment, yes. And right now, it's true. I'm definitely getting back into New York, settling into the flow, finding new mentors. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. Um, so how did you make the transition from, um, you know, working at a record label to playing drums for MIA? MIA was signed to Interscope. Uh, I knew her news album was coming out. So I made a video of myself drumming. And once I got into Harvard Business School, I was not working at Interscope anymore. And I had the summer off, and I had sent over a video to her product manager. And then her product manager at Interscope was a friend of mine and actually said, okay, cool, Like I like this video of you drumming to her music. I actually kind of see it. It's great. And I would have thought that she wouldn't have done that because it's a conflict of interest because I've worked for the label, but there was no drama like that. It was very informal she forwarded the video the youtube link that i made to maya maya responded to me immediately and was like we're in the studio still but i'll hit you up when uh when we're thinking about the tour and then she actually did that's great well you okay so wait just go back again for a second so you're working at the record label but then you are you're applying to business school yes what was the reason for you wanting to boss had a business degree and people were listening to her in the company and most importantly I liked that people in the music business know how to do the traditional music stuff and the Mm -hmm. music labels are organized around the business of packaging and selling CDs still there's transition being made but I knew that a business degree would help me think more flexibly about the industry and I wanted that training so you're applying to a business school and then MIA calls you I mean, I called her and then she responded. Well, no, but I mean, she calls you after you had sent her the... Oh, yeah. So she hit me up and she was like, all right, we're ready. Let's go. June is the rehearsal in uh, Montreal. Are you in? And I was like, oh, my fuck. I was for sure dreaming. I was like, what the fuck? Like, my email address is, this can't be right. You know, but I freaked out. And I said, yes. And I was there. What, up until that point before you went on tour with her, what was the biggest amount of people you had ever played in front of? Not a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So Probably what, at 18th Street Lounge on a Sunday, so, hundreds. Well, what's going through your mind then, you know, before you're about to get on a plane to go to Montreal? I was just screaming. It felt like, yes, yes, yes. It felt like, yes, this is why I was in L.A. Yes, this is why I worked at the record label. Yes, this is why I worked so hard. Yes, this is why I practiced the drums all the time. I turned my loneliness, by the way, of being in L.A. into a very productive time where I was like, oh, sick. I have no friends. I have yeah. no place I want to be. Ain't nobody inviting me to anything because no one even knows who I am. Sick. Drum studio. I rent. I have like a beer from the corner shop go to the drum studio, practice for three hours, and then go to sleep. And then I'd go to the record label, and then again, go to my drum studio and practice. That's great. It was awesome. And in L.A., everyone's so good. You're like, you can't be fucking showing up not knowing how to play the fucking drums. You better get your shit together. Like, it was motivating. Of course. And it felt like hard work paid off. It it felt good. How long were you on tour with her? About six months, and it overlapped with business school. And you were doing both at the same time? Yes. Which is crazy. I think one of the best things about being able to 
tour and be at school at the same time is that I just felt like I was at a max level of operation. I was by day in a very, very rigorous, academically intense environment where students from around the world, top students, are there prepared talking about business. Mm -hmm. And I came from music. I didn't come from consulting or banking where other cases definitely I think um, people who have had that experience, they do better speaking about the cases. And then at night, I was literally flying to Poland or flying to New York for the night to play a show or in the weekend to Japan. And I felt I felt at the top. I felt at the top of my own game. I felt like... Don't... I felt like this is such an honor mm-hmm. and I want this to work that I fought for it. So I didn't drink that whole time. I didn't hang out with people. You're like, I, didn't, I want to be present for I got to be yeah. present. Mm-hmm. I got to be... Um, I can't drop the ball for school, and I can't drop the ball for this tour. The tour was very, very generous to me. They let me be in school. They could have said, no, it's not convenient for us that you have to keep going back to Boston. Like, that's annoying. That's mm-hmm. a financial burden for us. Yeah. And they just they never said that. And I think it's because I did my best to be low-key about it and to not cause extra problems and to, like, carry my own bags and, like, show up and just be low-key so that it wasn't a big deal that I kept going back to Boston. Working close with, with Maya like that, um, mm. like, what like what what did you kind of take away from your guys' relationship? Oh, my God. I took away that when you create art, it is so important to you and so close to you that if somebody else doesn't get it right, it can be very frustrating. And it's it's amazing, actually. It's coming full circle. I understand that lesson now more than ever because I'm creating my own music. But when I was drumming to her track, she'd be like, that's not the tone. That's not the song. That's not the beat. Get into the rhythm of the song. Find another tone. We got to change that electronic sound. It's not right. Okay, why don't we try dropping a marble on a table? Okay, why don't we go into Montreal's Indian district and buy some puja bells and use them and mic them? We would always be very experimental and open to how we were making the sounds because she wants them to be right. And I remember feeling like my was getting my ass kicked. And then when I walked away from it, I was like, wow, that was like the best six-month drum training I've ever had in my life. Yeah. It's always that interesting thing, right, where it's like, you know, like where MIA or TV on the radio, they seem like these like these like un- untouchable giants, right? Totally. So like when your friend or someone you know like gets, gets on board, you're like, wow, fuck yeah. You made it. Yeah. You've made it. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Seriously, you know? I know. My mom always says that when our friends... Um, you know, are successful, we're successful. Mm-hmm. I think about that all the time. You know, I had a therapist many, many years ago who gave me some great advice where, um, you know, I was going through a period where I was like, well, why didn't I get that? Why did this person get that? You know, you know jealousy issues, yes. right? And she said to me, she's like, are you jealous of the president? I'm like, no, I'm not jealous of the president. <laughs> she's like, are you jealous of a doctor in the ER? I'm like, no, I'm not jealous of that. She says, well, the only reason you're jealous is because you know that you have the power to have that opportunity as well so you know like that that only means that you have the ability to make those opportunities happen for you too and it's like as your peers move up like so do you you know and then i never it was never a problem after that you know i would be remiss if if we didn't talk about the marathon at all oh yeah okay okay yeah we're about like a month out of everything that you know that happened and Looking back on it, are you kind of able to, you know, have some sort of feeling of, you know, what are you able to process what the response has been? When I was in it, it was unlike any other experience I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Anytime I've done an interview talking about drums or about music, about school, it's sort of innocuous. It goes up, the couple people who are relevant in that space maybe see it and then it dies. You know, it's right. not that big of a deal. So to have all this intense, concentrated attention internationally here, 
unexpectedly um, was something that I never anticipated. And I also didn't think, when I wrote my blog and when I ran, it felt radical. And that's why I wrote about it. It felt liberating. It right. felt empowered. And it felt like it made me think because I never thought so much about periods of men- menstruation, even though I go through it every month. Right. And I felt that there was something wrong with that. So I wrote about it. I never could have thought that that piece would have gotten the audience that it had. Mm-hmm. I never in a million years would have thought that, especially since so much other stuff on my blog. Basically, my mom and I just read. So that's right. pretty much it. I, once the first three days, I processed them and realized I have a mic for pretty much a day or two more to speak about something that matters to me mm-hmm. and that matters to women. And the time is now. And I need to get over myself and get over my fear and own it and go for it and talk. And that shift, that is was a major growth moment for me to have the strength to not worry about what people were thinking of me and all the mean things people were saying online right. and be like, whoa, what the fuck are you talking about periods or growth? What the fuck are you talking about? Women around the world are having, the, like, period stigma affects us both here and internationally. Here's what it looks like here. Here's what it looks like in the Eastern world. Here's mm-hmm. what it looks like in Uganda. Here's why not being able to talk about your own body is hugely problematic for safety, for your own ability to grow as a human, your own ability to contribute to your own society, your own ability to feel safe in your own skin. I mean, the more I thought about it, the more I felt very empowered with my own voice. So right. that was what the shift has been uh, as this story unfolded. What was what was going through your mind the night before? You know, I mean, marathons aren't something you just decide to do on a whim. There's <laughs> things you put a lot of work in, you train, you spend a lot of time training to do. And what's just run me through like what's going through your mind? I felt like everything was going wrong. I was so tired from the he- being uh, just coming in from Boston, mm-hmm. you know, the time difference. Um, I was n- so nervous. It was my first marathon. I didn't sleep at all. I wanted to crash with my other friend who was running it with me. And uh, they couldn't get a cot because the rest of the hotels had already gotten all the cots. And so I slept on the floor the night before the marathon. I didn't sleep much. And then I got my period. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my God, maybe I won't be able to run it. I've never practiced on my period. It hurts too much. I always get kind of nauseous. I like there's times when I haven't been able to go to class. It's just way too painful. But I can't say anything about it. You know, we just sort of accept that's like a norm that you can't say anything. But right. it's it's ridiculous. And I felt liberated in making that choice because I was able to run. And I think had I worn any sort of foreign object in my body, I would have to stop, deal with it, worry about it, freak out. Um, the night before was scary. The decision was empowered. The experience was transcendental. So how are you using this experience as an opportunity for your voice to be heard? Yes, in many ways. Most mornings I actually, because um, I received so many wonderful emails from young women mm-hmm. especially, those are the priority emails, you know. I have um, about uh, six or seven women who I've been in touch with. One girl is 17 from Pakistan. Another girl is in Croatia. She and her girlfriend are in touch with me a lot. Um, one is in Canada, but she's Iranian. Uh, another girl in South Africa. Just different girls who have emailed me and was like, I love what you did. I can't really talk about it here because it's scary or people are mean to me whenever I bring up the marathon thing that you did, but mm-hmm. I love it. So I'll Skype with them in the morning because it's usually the time difference. That's the way it has to sure. work or before work. And I'll just be like, what's going on where you are? Like, how is that? Like, wh- tell me, you know, so I can learn. Or Skyping different organizations around the world who are working in their own communities to make the world a better place for women around their periods. Um, obviously, in my opinion, you as a one human have to pick what lever of, of your sphere of influence you can pull. For me, I knew that being able to do this edgy thing, the risk for me was very low. Nothing was going to happen. So I had to do it. 
And in doing it, it sparked this whole conversation because the act was so shocking, which then enabled a lot of organizations who have always been doing work in this field well before even I learned anything about this in, like, for 10 years. Right. It allowed me to direct a lot of the attention of media that I was getting to their work and their organizations. Like, oh, okay, cool. New York Times, you guys want to talk? Here's 55 different organizations that know about this and can rock it out. Like, right. I mean thinks there's one here locally in new york like i even before the marathon i met um a woman here who i mentioned earlier in the interview mickey agrawal agrawal who formed an organization called thinks thinks partners with afropads in uganda so that every time a woman buys a pair of the underwear here which prevents bleeds and leakages so that you don't feel shame around your period they donate um pads for women and they enable women in africa to make reusable pads so partnering with them Using music, using shock culture to tie it all together, that's what has come of this. What makes all the hard work worth it? Wins. Wins. One woman texted me um, a screenshot of her WhatsApp with her trainer. And she texted her trainer, hey, I'm not going to be able to come this week because I'm on my period. And he texted back, he's like, after two days I saw that he texted back and he writes, did some research found some awesome moves that we can do so that you won't feel uncomfortable and you won't feel pain. Come on in. Don't skip out. And she wrote to me in the email every time, because she's been religiously training with this guy. She loves him and mm-hmm. loves his, his like schedule, but she always misses like a full week every month. And there, she's like, I never wanted to talk about it or say anything. I just say I'm busy that week. And by being able to tell him and then have him have this amazing response, which was, oh, okay, cool. Like, we won't do the crunches. We won't do the squats. We won't do that kind of bottom-down stuff. We'll just do other things that you can still come in for. Right. She said it was the best thing ever. And she said that the marathon and all the conversation that ensued around it, she would not have been able to send that text had that not happened. That's what makes all the hard work easy. Wins. Wins. Do you think that you can, you know, expand and grow while still staying true to your initial ideals and goals yes it's atomic living yeah it's pure it's moment to moment does this feel right does this person get it you know we've turned down a lot of like media opportunities i'm like no fuck you no you don't get it right wrong right it's not about media and attention no are you what are you you making the world i emailed a lot of people back and i was like i only align myself with media and companies who align in my mission of making the world a better place for women and if you don't align with that, we're not going to speak to you. Right. It's simple. That's it. So, no, it's easy to stay authentic because my mission is about making the world a better place for creators in the music industry and for women. Last question. Um, what's next for you? What's most important to me is making more uh, songs and taking all the talks that I give and the ideas that come out in a lot of the talks that I give about feminism, about equality, even in the music industry, mm-hmm. about artist rights, and incorporating those themes into my actual lyrics, into the speaking that I do over melodic tones at the shows that I perform at. I am obsessed with the concept of a madam. A madam as in Madam Prime Minister, Madam President, Madam Gandhi. I'm obsessed with this idea because for a long time, most standards of leadership are male, and men are wonderful leaders. But if women try to be men, we'll always fail. We're not men. So I always think about what does female leadership look like? Well, we actually don't have that many examples of it. You know that there's more CEOs named John than there are female CEOs. That's a fact. So we don't have an example, many examples. We have so many, but we don't have a no, like it's not written into the mainstream yet of what 
female leadership looks like and what female leadership can do for the earth. Mm-hmm. What a profound concept. How do you so, want to be a part of that change? I'm creating it. It's a concept of a madam. It's embodying it. It's living it. It's empowering others to find their own inner madam. It's about doing really good work and not being worried about what people think of you or what you look like or is your hair hot enough, etc., etc. You're doing. You're busy. You're making the world a better place. This is how you create change. This is the concept of a madam, and this is the message behind Madam Gandhi. That's great. Karen Gandhi, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jay. (laughs) 